quick PSA for our listeners who are U.S. citizens. The 2020 election season is now upon us, and it is so important that you make your voice be heard. Please go to www.vote.org to find out all voting information you might need, and be sure to vote early. Again, that website is www.vote.org. Plan your vote and enjoy the show. Computer, initialize Holosuite. Holosuite Media. Hello, listeners, and welcome to There Are Four Questions, a Star Trek Spotlight podcast. I'm your host, Christopher D. Littlefield, and in the interrogation chamber with me today is science fiction writer David Mack, whose work includes novels within the Marvel, Farscape 24, and the 4400 universes, the Farscape and Trek comic series, lots of original writing including the Dark Arts trilogy, and of course, tons of novels within the Star Trek universe. David's writing credits also include episodes of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and he is currently a consultant for the series Star Trek Lower Decks and for the upcoming series Star Trek Prodigy. David, how are you today, and did I miss anything? Nope, that was fairly complete, and I'm doing just great. Glad to be here. Awesome. It's so good to have you on today. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Listeners, this podcast is all about interviewing Star Trek fans, podcast hosts, and other very special guests like David here and asking them, you guessed it, four questions related to their Star Trek experience. To join the conversation on Facebook, type The Nexus into the search field and join our listeners' community. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 4QuestionsTrek, and that's the number four not spelled out. All right, David, let's go ahead and get started. Keep in mind that as the interrogator, I reserve the right to ask follow-up questions in order to obtain any additional intelligence that I need. As long as I'm not under oath. (laughs) All right. You ready to go? Oh, sure. I was born ready. All right. Question number one. David, what is your initial Star Trek origin story, and what led you to start writing in the Trek universe? I think the most honest answer to the origin story would have to be that I grew up watching the original series in syndicated reruns. That would be in the early 1970s. And as a result, I grew up imprinting upon Star Trek the way a baby duckling imprints on the first moving thing that it sees, so that the vision that Star Trek presented of the future, one where humanity had learned to put aside petty differences to work together, to accept each other, and to go out as one to the stars. That was a vision that inspired me since the beginning of my life, and it has, I think, colored all of my work. And it's a message that I found inspiring, and it's the reason why, even though I became later a Star Wars fan when the Star Wars movies came out, and I've enjoyed many other science fiction properties, such as Battlestar Galactica and The Expanse and many others, I always come back to Star Trek as my first love, just because of its optimism, of its hope for the future, of its desire and its efforts, not always successful, but always striving to try and do a better job of representing all of us having a place together in the future. As I said, the series has not always succeeded, but it has always at least been trying, and I'm hoping that its on-screen representations will continue to get better. And those of us who write the tie-in materials have likewise 
striven to do better and will continue to do so. As for what led me to start writing for Star Trek, of course, it was always a dream to somehow be a part of this thing that I loved. And what first got me to believe that it could happen was that while I was studying at NYU Film School, this would have been right around the same time that Star Trek The Next Generation began to air in syndication. They announced a policy at Star Trek The Next Generation, an open-door policy for speculative script submissions. Anybody, uh, a fan who wanted to take a stab at writing a full teleplay, not just a story pitch, but a full teleplay, and send it in on spec, you know, casting your bread upon the waters, as it were, was welcome to try. You were limited. You could only have one on submission at a time or maybe two. But I was like, you know, I'm, I'm studying screenwriting. I'm at film school. I love Star Trek. I know Star Trek inside now. I should take a stab at this. So I started writing spec scripts and sending them in and collecting the rejection letters slowly but surely over the course of years. And I never did break through at NextGen, but uh, I kept going when DS9 rolled around and had the same policy in place. I worked on scripts first with a collaborator, and that didn't fly. And then I switched collaborators, and the new collaborator turned out to be an editor of Star Trek books at Simon & Schuster, a fellow named John J. Ordover. And John was in the position of being able to get pitch meetings on the phone with the producers of the shows whenever he felt inclined. The reason he hadn't taken them up on it was that he had no training in television writing and it would have been like a dog chasing a car. He wouldn't have known what to do with it if he had caught it. But once he and I teamed up, I had the training and expertise. He had the access. We put our heads together. We figured out that we worked well together. I sort of prepared him for what would be required if we made a sale. So we practiced. We made sure that we were ready. And together with John, we scheduled some uh, pitch meetings. And the first one was with Voyager. This would have been in... March of 1995. And on that first phone call, we made a story sale for a story that ended up not being produced, but we were paid. And a couple of weeks later, we had another pitch meeting with the folks at DS9. And we made two story sales off that phone call. And Jerry Taylor, to whom we had sent our DS9 spec script, uh, just so she could consider us for script assignment if she went forward with our story sale, she uh, heard that we'd made a, a sale to DS9. So, you know, she sent our spec script down to Iris Stephen Bear at DS9. And she said, uh, I heard you bought a story from Mac and Ordover. I know you're not supposed to look at DS9 spec scripts, but this one's really good. Consider giving them a story assignment. Ira read it. He agreed. And after we made that first story sale, we were offered script assignment on our first story sale at DS9, something that is almost never afforded to freelancers on a first story sale. And John and I flew out from New York to LA. We got to do the break session. So my first professional sale of fiction, my first professional fiction writing credit in any medium turned out to be for an episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. I started my career with Star Trek on television, contributing to Karen. That is incredible. And uh, from that, John and I thought, well, you know, we've made three sales in short succession. We're, you know, destined for bigger and better things. And that turned out not to be true. <laughs> right. We had many more pitch sessions over the years, and none of them 
ever again yielded a sale to TV, much to our disappointment. But during that time, still in need of money, uh, because I had come out of college deep in debt, I ended up working for John uh, and for the Star Trek books office in general here in New York, performing such functions as reading slush manuscripts and writing cover rejection letters based on a check sheet so that the editors didn't have to spend their time doing so. I compiled and wrote reference materials for the Star Trek authors based on the work they had done, particularly Peter David with his New Frontier series, which was premiering at that point in the late 90s. And to help Peter keep all of the new uh, original details for his series straight, my job was to go through and just sort of log all of these details in an encyclopedic format. And this became the New Frontier Minipedia, which was published in the back of a hardcover, uh, a small format hardcover compilation of the first four short New Frontier books that he had written. And from that, I was hired to write other things. Uh, a book came up short and I was asked to fill it out. And little by little, these different types of freelance assignments snowballed so that I had developed over a period of a few years a reputation within the Star Trek books office as someone who could write clean, Star Trek techno babble. Uh, I could write clean prose. I could write quickly on demand and meet my deadlines. And it led to me being offered my first Star Trek book contract in 2000, which was the Starfleet Survival Guide. And it was pitched to me as an idea that had been developed internally by the editors and art director and uh, whatnot. It had already been approved by CBS, uh, Star Trek, the licensors. So it was an approved concept and all it needed was a writer. Did I want the job? I said, let me get this straight. I get to write a book, get paid for it, have my name on the cover, and I don't have to pitch anything? Count me in, put me in coach, I'm ready, let's go. Yeah. So I took the gig, that worked out. They said, okay, you can finish a book. Why are you interested in writing for the fiction? I said, I would love to. And they said, well, we're launching at this point in 2001, a new line of ebook exclusive novellas being published on a monthly basis called Starfleet Corps of Engineers or Star Trek SCE for short. Would you be interested in joining that? And I said, absolutely. So I'd never written prose fiction before, despite having been encouraged many times to try doing so. And John and the other editor in charge of SCE, my friend Keith R.A. DeCandido, sort of walked me through the process. My first outing in writing prose fiction was a collaboration with Keith DeCandido. I wrote the story outline for a two-part SCE story called Invincible, and this became a pair of novellas. Uh, I wrote the outlines, which were very detailed. Keith decided how to execute them in uh, a manuscript format. And we were going to do that again several months later. I had come up with an idea for something called Wildfire. And uh, we were going to do the same thing again, two-parter. I write the outline, Keith writes the manuscript. And what changed my mind about that was that before we got to that point, 9-11 happened. And like many New Yorkers, uh, that was sort of a, a pivotal moment for me as I stood in the middle of the street and watched the towers fall. And I came out of that experience a few months later. I talked with Keith. I said, look, I know we had discussed doing this as a collaboration, but I feel like there are things I want to say and I don't want to be filtered through another writer. How would you feel about me tackling this one solo? 
And Keith, uh, to his credit, uh, he said, I think that's a fabulous idea. If there's anything I can do to help, let me know. But take that ball, run with it. I'm excited to see what you'll do with it. And uh, I, I give Keith a lot of credit. I give him a lot of grief, too. But uh, <laughs> the truth is, he's one of my closest friends. And it's because of him that I became a novelist. He gave me lots of coaching, lots of guidance. But it was that moment where he was willing to put aside ego and say, yeah, yeah, take this ball, run with it, you do it. And that became wildfire. Uh, my first exercise in writing prose narrative fiction by myself. And uh, it made some USA Today ebook bestseller list. It got a lot of good critical attention. And it led to me being invited to write my first pair of back-to-back -back paperback novels for Star Trek in uh, 2003. And those came out in 2004. And it's just been a roller coaster ride ever since. Um, now I'm up to, uh, I think I just signed a contract to write my 29th novel for Star Trek. I've written 36 published novels altogether. Uh, I've written a whole bunch of short fiction, novellas, short stories, novelettes. Uh, I've written for television, video games, comic books, theater, you name it. So uh, it's been sort of a, a wild ride over the last 20 years or so, but that is pretty much how I came to Star Trek and then how I came to Star Trek professionally. Wow, that is an incredible story. It's it's interesting that sometimes, especially in the creative industry, that sometimes it just takes one person kind of stepping aside and saying, no, you go ahead, go ahead and do what you need to do. And it's just, it, it's it's very hopeful when, when people do things like that. It was a remarkable act of generosity on Keith's mm -hmm. part, but that's Keith. In a nutshell, Keith is one of the kindest, uh, most generous souls I've ever met. Uh, he's really just a, a wonderful, warm, and loving individual uh, toward humanity in general. But he's especially good to his friends. And he is especially good at putting aside his ego for the good of others. And uh, th that's one of the things that I think makes Keith a, a genuinely terrific human being. No, that's really beautiful. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Rousseau was on several weeks ago and was talking about his, his captain growing up was Picard. So getting to, to score for Star Trek Picard was like a really big deal for him. And I imagine also being a writer and growing up, having fallen in love with Star Trek and then being able to combine your craft with that is is just an amazing, an amazing thing to experience. It really is. It's an incredible feeling to be part of Star Trek, not just in an ancillary manner, writing for the tie-ins, but to have been able to contribute to the shows, at least in some small way, to have contributed to the canon right. of this phenomenon, this, the, this shared universe that I have loved literally my whole life. Uh, as early as I have memories, I remember Star Trek. I remember Kirk and Spock and Bones and Apollo and the Dichronian cloud creature and the Galileo 7. And it, it's all in there jumbled together as childhood memory. And so for me, Star Trek is something that I have loved ever since I knew that I loved things. And now I'm a part of it. And I'm allowed to uh, serve as a consultant, most recently on Star Trek Lower Decks and also on Star Trek Prodigy to be able to offer the benefit of my experience, my decades of professional experience with the franchise 
and my even more decades of just lifelong familiarity with it to understand its tone, its voices, its ideology, everything that makes it what it is, what makes it special and different from other things. To be able to share that with new creators, new teams of creative personnel, to help them make the trekkiest version of these new visions and these new, these new journeys, these new ideas. It's a remarkable privilege and one that I do not take lightly. Yeah. And I think that, that that's, I mean, who better to have somebody that's just a really huge fan to be contributing to the world of Trek too, you know? I mean, I wish I was even more involved. I would love to be in the writer's room, <laughs> but uh, at the moment, because I live in New York, that's a little difficult. I could be in LA, you know, like that. I, I'm registered to do business in California Hint, hint, guys in California. I can be out there in 10 days or less. Uh, just saying. Call him. <laughs> I mean, I would love to be on uh, the writing staff for, let's say, Strange New Worlds. Great idea. Uh, I feel like I could have had something to contribute to Section 31. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I have to be patient. Maybe there will be opportunities in the future. For now, they allow me to serve as a consultant. So I'm simply striving to be the best consultant for them that I can be. Well, I think that's great. I think that's wonderful. Well, this actually kind of brings us to question number two. Mm -hmm. So we all know that the novels are not considered canon, and there are things that happen in the in the books that don't reflect what we see on screen. However, I'm always fascinated at the richness and depth in which the novels explore individual character traits and histories, and I find that they can often be superimposed onto the on-screen versions to provide additional insights into the characters. Mm -hmm. What's the internal creative process like for you in developing the story for pre-existing characters that we all know so well? One of the fundamental rules when writing tie-in media, such as a media tie-in novel for Star Trek or any other franchise, is that the tie-in material must be consistent with the details of canon as it exists at the time the work is created. So part of what I'm always keeping in mind when I'm developing a new story, uh, whether out of whole cloth or whether I've been asked to do so by either uh, an editor or by the licensor, is I look at things like unanswered questions or questions that are raised by things that we've seen in the show. You say, well, that was really cool, but where did that come from? Or whatever happened to that guy? Or that's interesting. How is that? How could that possibly come back in a different way and be revisited? And what would that mean for that character? So I think that one of the advantages, of course, of novels is that they are a richer, deeper medium, partly because of their length. They are more complex. They require more detail. They have more scenes. They have more time, more room. You can build in parallel stories and then eventually weave them together. You can take your time and do slow burn on certain types of narrative that you can't get away with when you're trying to finish a 51-minute episode of streaming television. In general, a good way to think about it in terms of the amount of story content involved your average hour-long episode of television has about as much story content as a short story or maybe a novelette, which would be about 7,500 to 10,000 words, give or take, of prose. Your average Star Trek novel these days are contracted at about 100,000 words. 
So a 10-episode season is roughly equivalent to one decent-sized Star Trek novel. And a feature film has about as much narrative content as a long novella, maybe 17,000 to, let's say, 30,000 words. That would be a long novella. So when you have a novel and you're starting to think about the scope of the story, having to fill 100,000 words, this was one of the great challenges for me when I was first starting out. I had been trained in screenwriting. I had been trained in TV writing. I thought in terms of TV story, TV length story ideas and movie length story ideas. And one of the hardest transitions that I had to make when I started writing novels was learning to think in terms of much larger, more complex and more nuanced story ideas. Other major differences between the formats include the fact that when you're writing a screenplay or a teleplay, you can only write about what the camera can see and what the microphone can hear. So you focus on sight and sound, and these are the only senses to which most screenplays really speak. But when you're writing integrated prose, you're typically writing through the perspective of a character in any given scene, and you have to remember to address all five senses whenever you can. Uh, so you're thinking in terms of you know, temperature, tactile sense, you're thinking in terms of taste, you're thinking in terms of smell, in addition to sight and sound. And then you've also got internal emotional filters. Now, instead of the cold external eye, the omniscient eye of the camera, you now have the subjective eye of the, of the character. And you've got to filter the experience through the character. So I think part of what brings novels that sense of depth is that not only are you experiencing the moment and sort of creating that mini movie in your imagination, but you are now also at the same time receiving the internal monologue, the internal reactions of the character through whom you are experiencing the story. So now you have an emotional depth to it that maybe you don't have in TV or film. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that go into that feeling. I mean, it's the, it's the length of the work, it's the depth of it, it's the sensory depth, it's the shift from omniscient to subjective, but again, what keeps it all tied together and what keeps the books from, say, going completely off the rails is that we are always reminded we must build from canon, at least to a certain degree. One of the things we've been doing for the last 20 years or so in the novels is developing an ongoing shared literary continuity in which books are building upon the events of, pre of previous books, which is something that had not been done up to that point in the 90s, for like the first 30 years or so of high-end publishing in Star Trek, that just wasn't done. Um, or maybe the first 20 years, but over the last 20 years, that is something we've been doing. It's something that uh, has been very rewarding. We've built long-running narratives that stretch all the way back to 2001. Uh, we can show with some of the DS9 relaunch novels or post-finale novels, as they're sometimes called. And that eventually was a process we carried over to Next Generation and into Voyager. We tied most of the literary continuities together at the end of 2008 with my Star Trek Destiny trilogy, um, which you know sort of was the, the long-feared, long-awaited Borg invasion. It's the final showdown between the Federation and the Borg Collective. Two civilizations will enter, only one can leave sort of thing. So we have these long-running arcs 
and that's also part of what's giving us that depth in the books or has been. But now with the resurgence of the new shows, we have to sort of shift gears and we have to begin moving away from those books and we have to start moving toward books that will be more closely linked to the ongoing media properties. So we're going to be looking at more books that are going to connect directly to Discovery, to Star Trek Picard. Eventually, I think we'll have to look at tie-in materials, either books or comics related to Lower Decks and to Prodigy. And when Section 31 and Strange New Worlds come along, we're definitely going to want books that will speak to those properties. So I think we're going to see a return to a more classic approach uh, of books that are going to try and explore these little what-if niches and these little sort of pocket moments, bits of backstory. Uh, and I think we're going to get away from the long serialized post-finale narratives that we've been working on for the last 20 years. But I will say those are not going to go away without a fight. We, we do have plans afoot. Uh, I can't speak of them yet because the publisher has not announced them. But I will say we are, uh, we are not going to go quietly into that good night. <laughs> I'm sure that, that that will make a lot of people happy. But the opportunity to really expand in a new way is is also very cool. Indeed. And I think maybe one part of your previous question that I didn't totally address, you'd ask, what's the internal creative process like for me in developing those stories? Right. I try to find questions that push a character to their limits. Like, what would be the thing that this character most fears to deal with? Or what would be something a, a crisis if, if a crisis were to occur and this character had to deal with it what would be the one thing they would stand to lose or the person they would stand to lose that would cause them the most pain or would cause them the most conflict is there anything that could be put in the balance that would cause this character to consider betraying their normal course of action you would say well you know you could always count on cisco to do this Yes, but what if Jake's life is at stake? Right. You can always count on, uh, you know, Jordy to do this. Yes, but what if doing that means that uh, his, you know, resurrected friend Data in the books is going to die? Or Dr. Crusher would always do this. Yes, but what if it means the death of millions of innocents? Is she willing to sacrifice that many people in order to save a few? How does she do moral calculus? Uh, so it's a matter of finding the things that the characters value and finding conflicts that will force them to basically take a moral evaluation of themselves, to take a moral accounting and then have to make a choice and then live with it. That's great. And I that, you know, that's really kind of at the essence of what Trek is, is questioning these 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 characteristics of our own humanity. Mm -hmm. That's great, David. All right, question three. As a musician myself and a creative professional, I've learned often the hard way that versatility and flexibility is a very big asset in my career. You've played many roles in the Trek universe from writing for the small screen to novels and now being a consultant on the new animated series. How have each of those roles challenged you artistically and how have they shaped the necessity of being versatile and flexible as a creative professional? That's a heck of a question. I got to give you credit. Isn't it? <laughs> it's interesting in that there has been a progression, although I maybe didn't think about it while it was going on. When I first started out, I was just a freelancer, a hired gun. I was a, 
crazy kid who'd had an idea and had the means to pitch it. The show bought it. I got to be in the writer's room, but I didn't get to say a lot or do a lot. Mostly it was just about the excitement of being in the room when it happened and watching these fabulous professionals, people like Robert Hewitt Wolf, Ronald D. Moore, uh, Rene Echeverria, Iris Stephen Bear, Hans Beimler, watching these guys break story, watching how they work, how they think, how they bounce ideas off each other. It was remarkably educational, but my primary responsibility in that moment was to shut up and let them work and not get in their way. And then to take the outline that was developed, go away and write what they told me to write and have it done on time. And I remember thinking, okay, well, you know, we might've done some things differently, but this is the outline they settled on. This is the story they want. Don and I scrambled. We got that script done. We got it done maybe even a couple of days ahead of, of deadline. And we turned it into Hans Beimler who at that time was a supervising producer on Deep Space Nine. And I'll never forget what Hans said, because it was the most soul-crushing thing you could say to somebody turning in their first teleplay. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, great. The teleplay is here. Now the writing can begin. <laughs> oh. oh, man. Oh. But that was true. The script went through something like five or six uncredited rewrite drafts, all by Rene Echeverria. Uh, a lot of them were budgetary in nature, some were logistical, some responded to casting changes uh, that had come up, and there were just a lot of things. I mean, rewrites happen very fast in, on a TV show, and they happen for a lot of reasons, and there's no time to process it all through an out-of-house freelancer. Once the freelancer turns in their script, you need an in-house producer to deal with that. So the next thing, that next step of my writerly education was when you write by committee, say for film or TV, you can't be precious about your words. Mm -hmm. You have to do your part and then realize that whatever happens next is not about you personally. It's maybe not even about the quality of what you wrote, but sometimes there are just needs that you don't know about. And to be a team player, you simply have to let go of your possessiveness about the words you wrote and accept that it's going to mutate. It's going to change. Everyone's going to have a hand in it. And you just got to be glad you were part of the team. Be glad you were in the room when it happened. Be glad you got to contribute. So that was something that I had to learn. Uh, and that was an important lesson. Then as an assistant in the Star Trek books office, I had to learn how to be useful. I had to learn how to gauge what editors wanted what they needed or what they said they wanted and needed versus what they really wanted and needed. And I had to learn to serve those needs as well as the needs of the authors to whom they passed me as an assistant, people like John Bornholt, Michael Van Friedman, Peter David. So I would provide that assistant, you know, role. I, I would fulfill that role and I had to learn to do that and do it gladly because that was how I was getting money to pay off my student loans. And then being given that opportunity to step up, to do something more, the one thing I learned as an assistant was to always say yes. It was like improv. It's always yes and. Mm -hmm. Can you do this? Yes. And when would you like it done? Yes. And uh, how would you like that format? You know, how would you like that formatted? So it was like that. Uh, so that when opportunities came along, would you like to write a book for us? Yes, I would. And when would you like that done? <laughs> And how long would you like that to be? These were the sort of, you know, things that I had to learn. 
as a novelist, then the next sort of step was learning to be more independent, learning that the sort of always asking questions and sort of collecting information from my supervisors and my, my editors and my peers, that was something that you are expected to do when you're an assistant or even when you're sort of a newbie working on your first book. People expect to have to throw you a few lifelines. But beyond that, once you sort of graduate up and you get offered full-length paperback novels back-to-back and you're on tight deadline, if you make that commitment, people are expecting it's because you know what you're doing and you're not going to have to be handheld through the whole process because they've got a hundred thousand other things they've got to do. They've got jobs, they've got lives. They can't do yours for you. So the next thing I had to learn was how to be more independent, how to make decisions on my own, how to be confident in the decisions that I made and trust my authorial sense. And I spent a lot of time on that. And then it's sort of funny. I had to sort of come around 180 degrees when I was offered the consultancy opportunity, first with Prodigy and, uh, and then with Lower Decks, both of which happened very quickly, one right after the other. I suddenly had to learn that I couldn't make the same sort of bold authorial decisions that I would make working on my own stuff. I had to once again learn to step back into the assistant role. I had to learn to be deferential. I had to learn that, okay, I can't phrase this as, you shouldn't do this or you can't do that. I had to say, well, there's an issue with this. This might be in conflict with canon because of this, this, and this. And I also had to apply things that I learned in the writer's room 25 years ago, which is if you break an idea, if you say, well, there's a problem, this and this, you don't say that unless you are immediately prepared to follow up with, but here's how I think we fix it. I think Mm -hmm. if we do this, this, and this, we can correct this with a minimum of time and effort and we can get it back where it needs to be without compromising the core idea of what you want to do. Sometimes I did that better than others. And uh, (laughs) I've done what I can within that capacity. Everything is always a learning opportunity. I'm always trying to figure out what I can do better, how I can do it better. But uh, it's interesting in that, you know, and then artistically, I mean, these these are all sort of matters of both uh, temperament and professionalism and method. And then artistically, just the the journey has just been about exploring my authorial voice, like finding more concise ways to express ideas on the page, more forceful ways, more evocative ways, finding ways to do more with fewer words, uh, which is probably hard to believe given the way I answer these questions. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, it's it, it has been a journey. I mean, to, to be a writer and to be lucky enough to keep getting hired to write books one of the things I most want to avoid is repetition. I don't want someone to say, well, that's the same book you wrote. You just changed the names of the planet and the the MacGuffin. I don't ever want someone to say that. I want someone to be able to say that every book I wrote, while there's a certain expected quotient of say action, drama, et cetera, I don't ever want someone to say, you already wrote that book. I don't ever want to be put in the position of just doing the same thing over and over and over again. Uh, that's great. I, I think the way that you're answering the questions is, is fantastic. So, <laughs> well, thank you. It's very kind. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting. This theme that comes up a lot is that once you've quote made it and you're working in, in, in what you love to do, there's still this check of the ego and you're, you have to work with people all the time. Yes. 
and you have to take into account their feelings because right. other creative uh, professionals are just as invested in what they're creating as what I'm creating. And mm -hmm. you have to remember when you give criticism that even though we're all supposed to treat the work as something outside of ourselves, when you invest this much of yourself, it's hard not to feel a sting when someone comes back with criticism. So you've got to be gentle. Yeah. And I've forgotten that sometimes to my detriment. You and me both. <laughs> that is something that is that is a lesson that I've probably been that has been tried to ta been taught to me several times. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, we're very sensitive about our work, especially when it's something that we love so much, you know. Indeed. And it's also sometimes hard as a creative professional. We're often more susceptible to emotional swings or to emotional malaise, to depression, which can also negatively impact how we interact with others and how we come off to others. Uh, sometimes, you know, just because, you know, we might be in a, a lousy mood or we feel down on ourselves, we say something that's meant to be self-deprecating, but someone else takes it as complaining about them and they think we're complaining that they haven't served us when we actually mean the opposite. We mean we think we're crap, but right, it's weird, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's hard to remember to stay positive all the time. Yeah. But in a lot of ways, that's something that our profession often requires. Well, yeah. I mean, you get told no a lot. <laughs> so oh, yeah. so it's it's hard and then and then you know it's easy to become defensive because we think about all the other times that we've been criticized and sometimes that weighs on our current situation or our conversation or creative discussion and then you look at all the things that somebody said yes to and you're like really yeah <laughs> really yeah and you said no to me right but you said yes to them oh yeah it's really tricky work all right then all right then. All right. Well, question four, David, you do a lot of appearances and obviously have a lot of direct communication with Trek fans. What have you personally learned from them and what advice would you give to aspiring young creatives in the sci-fi universe? Interesting question. What have I learned from the fans? I think primarily I've learned that they love Star Trek as much as I love Star Trek, even if we don't always agree on interpreting the characters or deciding on where the characters narratively should go next. I've also come to learn that uh, the fans sometimes have a depth of knowledge about particular areas of interest that I lack, and that many of them can be fantastic resources. Finding that one fan who, you know, just happens to know every little detail about the physics of some aspect of the ship, and you happen to be in the middle of writing sequencing, like, damn, how would that work? And you realize, I know who would know the answer to that. Hmm. Or you're writing a sequence where you're thinking, you know, I really would love to have actual Klingon lyrics here that would fit this folk song. But who do I know who could render it into proper grammatical Klingon? Wait, <laughs> I know a guy. Yeah. I know a guy who knows a guy. The plot. <laughs> so... <laughs> I, I think that that has been very helpful is, is just remembering that as much as I think I know about Star Trek, and I know quite a bit, uh, I have to accept that uh, sometimes there will always be somebody who knows a little bit more about this or about that than I do. And uh, it's reminded me to sometimes double check my sources, uh, especially if I feel like a, a fan is calling me out in either a review 
which I normally let go. Or if they send me a private message and they're saying, well, you got this wrong or that wrong. I don't just knee jerk, you know, come back and say, how dare you say I got it wrong. Sometimes I look at it and I say, did I get something wrong? Hmm. I better double check my facts before I reply to this person because they might be right. I may have bungled something. So I've, uh, I have learned to be a little more humble and to not take for granted that I'm always right. That's great. Uh, as far as advice to aspiring young creatives in the sci-fi universe, I mean, just in general, I mean, there is so much advice that one could give. It's hard to know where to begin. I guess the first is that if you are interested just generally in the field of science fiction, fantasy, speculative literature, from, say, a writing standpoint, let's say, since that's what I happen to know best. And you're dealing, let's say you go to something like a world fantasy or a world con, you're dealing with older fans who are maybe my age or older. And they're going to insist to you that there's some canon you need to read. And if you haven't read this, then you don't know science fiction and you got no business writing it. And they're going to make you feel like there's 50 years of homework you need to read before you can even start to approach the genre. And they're going to send you all the way back to, you know, Mary Shelley, which is perfectly legitimate, by the way. And they're going to send you back to H.G. Wells and Verne and Asimov. And they're going to tell you, you got to read Sheckley and you got to read every issue of this magazine that was ever produced. I'm here to tell you that's ridiculous. That's actually not true. There is much of value to be found in the classic works, but there is much that is problematic in those works. There is much in the work of say the you know pre-1950 or even pre-1960s era that by today's standards is racist sexist transphobic and which does not reflect a more inclusive view of humanity of the range of uh sexuality of gender that we understand is now actually completely normal but has been societally repressed mm-hmm and in many cases hidden from view. If you're just interested in finding out like, you know, where the state of the genre is, which is a perfectly legitimate place to start, start with what's being published now. There's nothing wrong with starting with what's current. Most of what's current has built upon the shoulders of what's gone before and surpassed it. There's no reason not to start. You don't have to go all the way back to Heinlein if Heinlein doesn't interest you. Start with N.K. Jemison. Uh, you know, start with Eliot Don Johnson. Start with Octavia Butler. Uh, start with Andre Norton if you want to go back to the 60s and the classics, you know, if you really have to. But, uh, you know, there's no reason you shouldn't be reading Arcady Martin. You, you should be reading current writers, uh, people like Seth Dickinson, uh, Max Gladstone, uh, Amala Motar, Rita Lana Meyer. There's so many great new writers who are worthy of your attention read them and then if the classics still interest you go back and and read that find what you like in the end just because someone tells you something is classic or seminal doesn't mean you have to like it uh doesn't even mean you have to respect it you might look at it and say i understand why this was historically important but i don't think it's something i want to emulate now and that's perfectly valid and then beyond that I guess always remember that everybody you deal with, there are no little people. There are just people who happen to be in jobs that for the moment make them subordinate to somebody else. 
be good to everybody. Be respectful to everybody. It doesn't cost anything extra to be kind. Be kind to the assistant, to the PA, because tomorrow they could be a development executive. They, tomorrow they could be a vice president of development at a studio. You don't know. You don't know who their family is. You don't know who their friends are, who their connections are. It doesn't cost you anything to be kind. Be kind. Another thing, sometimes I know people love to get into like, you know, a dog pile during the two minute hate on social media and blog the the social media violator of the day. Mm-hmm. People have long memories. And when you do stuff like that, it might feel good in the moment, but you never, again, you never know whose feelings you might hurt. Don't be so quick to trash other creatives. Realize that everybody is fighting a hard uphill battle with their own creative demons, maybe with their health, possibly with their finances. They might have a difficult family situation. There are a million things that this person could be struggling with that you know nothing about. Be kind. Again, uh, don't tear down other creatives. If you find something you love, promote it. If one of your friends does well, promote them. But if somebody screws up, unless it's something that really needs to be addressed because they're in a position of power and they're punching down and they're in a position to hurt people with what they do, then yes, speak up. But don't punch down. There's no reason to bring the weight of the internet down on somebody who isn't in a power position. So I would say, you know, beyond that, just work at your craft, work at what you love. Don't be afraid that a job is too small or beneath you when you're first starting out. When you're first starting out, a lot of what it's about is simply having an opportunity to meet people, work with people, and develop a reputation for reliability, for not being a lot of drama to work with. I mean, that's pretty much how I got where I was. It was a lot of just meeting the right people, being easy to work with, hitting my deadlines, and not causing a lot of grief for somebody along the way. And because of that, I kept getting offered better things. Someone would say, well, he did good work on this. He came in on time. We, we asked him to write 5,000 words in 72 hours on a specific subject in a specific format, and he hit the deadline perfectly and gave us clean copy. It's stuff like that. And you keep doing that enough, and eventually it builds up. And before you know it, you got yourself a career. So that would be my advice. Wow. Work hard, be kind. Yeah such good advice such such good words thank you david that's that's great reminded of uh one of the principles of i think it's zoroastrianism uh freddie mercury i think put this in my head good thoughts good words good actions and they sort of flow in that order have good thoughts in your head first you know put aside anger selfishness envy Think in terms of kindness, how you can help others, how you can make things better, how you can make yourself better, how you can make your art better. Those good thoughts, let them translate into good words. Speak well of others. Speak kindly of yourself. Cut yourself a break. Uh, Don't tear others down. Don't speak in anger. Take 10 seconds and breathe and think to yourself, does this really need to be said by me at this time? Mm Mm-hmm. Most of the time, the answer at some point will be no, and you can just let it go. And then finally, good actions, good thoughts and good words eventually lead to good actions in which you promote the work of others, you lend a helping hand to others, maybe you help someone financially when they're in a moment of distress, uh, or you 
take the action of making introductions for someone who has something important to say, but maybe is not in a privileged position in society, but you make the introductions that help them move up a rung on the ladder. Good thoughts, good words, good actions. I think that that's a good philosophy. I did not know that we were going to go to church today, David Mack. Uh, I, I mean, I'm sort of all over the map. Uh, I'm not really a spiritual person, but no, it's great. <laughs> I, I like I like Buddhist philosophy. Yeah, yeah, me too. When I was on vacation a number of years ago, I found a book called Bunny Buddhism. I'd never really kind of understood Buddhist uh, Zen Buddhism before that, but once it was recast in bunny metaphors, because I really like bunnies, uh, <laughs> at that point I got it. I'm like, okay, now I get it. I understand now. Yeah. Changed my life. I love that book. I will be checking it out. And there, it's true. There's, there's so, so much about you know, the concept of that being in service to others is really the best way to serve yourself mm -hmm. eventually. You know? But also, you're just helping people. So <laughs> there's, that's great. And eventually realizing that it's not going to be all about us. That sometimes, for all we know, maybe the best thing any one of us will do in life is help somebody else who goes on to do something great or notable or kind. And right. They were able to do that because we did something kind for them. Right. We may never know it, but I think it's uh, it's worth a shot. Yeah, I think that's great. Wow. Well, David, I hate to break it to you. I know that you think there are four questions here, but there are actually five questions. I only see four. There are five questions. The card would tell you there's four. <laughs> are you ready to proceed with your final question? Well, you've got me locked in the chamber. Really, what can I do? Yeah, and you're not under oath, so. <laughs> well, there is that. All right, question five. You have been granted an unlimited budget to produce an on-screen version of any of your original Trek novels or series. Mm -hmm. Which do you choose and why? Oh, that's easy. Star Trek Vanguard. I thought you might say that. Vanguard was... Probably one of the creative highlights of my career. For those who are unfamiliar with it, it's a literary series, ran for eight books. It is set parallel in time to the events of the original series of Star Trek. So roughly from around the time of the original unaired pilot, The Cage, through the end of the third season of the original series. It covers roughly that span of time. And it's about a starbase called Starbase Vanguard, a.k.a. Starbase 47. It's out at the edge of Federation territory in a section of space known as the Taurus Reach, which is located between Klingon space and Tholian space, somewhere near where in next-gen time they'll figure out that the Khan Empire used to be. And it's sort of a mix of gritty Battlestar Galactica-esque dark politics Lovecraftian horror with these strange ancient precursor alien creatures that used to have an empire and are maybe rising again because we've meddled with the wrong tech. There's political shenanigans that involve the Klingons, the Romulans, the Tholians, the Orion pirates, and Starfleet caught in the middle of all of it. And then what drives the whole thing, what it's all about, the entire saga is about unsung heroes about people who start in a very flawed place, making very flawed decisions or acting in unethical ways as tools of the national security state. And the moral and physical toll that this takes on them, the prices that they pay and the journeys that 
many of them take toward atonement, some of whom you know don't make it through. And in the end, it's about the unsung heroes, the people who sacrifice everything for a noble idea, for a noble cause. And even though the battle is won, nobody will ever know their names. There's not going to be any statues to them. There's going to be no monuments. They're not going to be written about in the history books. History will forget them, but they at least get to go on knowing that they did the right thing. They kept the faith. They fought the good fight. And it tells us, and it's also essentially not only about all this stuff, but it also serves as a prequel story in a sense, in that it explains where the Federation got its hands on what eventually became the Genesis device technology, which to me always seemed way too powerful for 23rd century Starfleet to have actually come up with it. I mean, that's some pretty next level tech. It seemed kind of beyond them. So part of what you find out in Vanguard, spoiler alert, is that this alien precursor tech is a big part of what eventually becomes the Genesis device and the Genesis technology. And that's part of why everybody's fighting over all of this alien data, et cetera. But it's got things like pocket universes and creatures that exist in multiple bodies at once. And it's just wild. In a lot of ways, it's like a Star Trek version of, it's like Star Trek meets Battlestar Galactica via the Expanse. And I've already got like dream casting in my head. Like if I was casting it today, I'd cast Josh Brolin as the Diego Reyes. Although when I was writing it, I was thinking of Tommy Lee Jones. Oh, wow. I've got like four different actresses in mind for Duprin. It would depend on who's available, but I could think of four different actresses who would all be fantastic at. <laughs> I mean, it could be Ava Green. It could be Maggie Siff. It could be Talia Tellis. So, I mean, I've, I've got like, oh, uh, oh, what's his name? The, the guy from Lost in Space and uh, Black Sails. Uh, the guy who was the star of Black Sails. I see him as Cervantes Quinn. Okay. You know, so so he would basically be, you know, the lovable rogue who is, you find out, is like ex-mercenary, uh, ex-soldier of fortune, incredibly dangerous guy. But anyway, I've got my, my dream casting all written out for the whole thing, and I know that I want, for, if I had unlimited budget and they would let me do it, I know that I would want to get the cinematographer from uh, the FX series Legion. Oh, yeah. To shoot it. Oh, yeah. I know yeah. I want Lorne Balfe to be the, the composer. I want him Ugh. and or Hans Zimmer to do the music. Oh, my God. I mean, I've got the effects house picked out. Uh, <laughs> I know I've got a couple of favorite editors I'd love to hire. I know who I'd put in the room. I know who would be in that room like right now. I know who I'd want as my showrunner to make the trains on time. I'd want to run the writing staff, but of course. we need a showrunner who actually knows how to run a show. Mm-hmm. But I've got like a list of like four or five names of like, these are people who deserve to be in that room. And so, that, yeah, that would be it. It would be Vanguard and it would be glorious. We would do three seasons, maybe four at most. I think we could do it in three, but if we had a little bit more room, we might be able to do four seasons at 10 episodes or four seasons at eight episodes. If they'd make us do 13 episode seasons like they've been doing for Discovery, then maybe it can only run three. Mm-hmm. But if it's going to be more like eight or 10 episode seasons, we could probably get four seasons out of it. And I know how to break it up and how to structure it. And, but yeah. Yeah, that, 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 was a, that was an easy one. Thanks for the softball. Yeah, <laughs> I figured I'd give you one. I, I want this to happen. This sounds, this sounds incredible. You want this to happen? Oh my God, I've been dreaming about this for years. Maybe like... 2023 or something is 2023 too soon uh 
<laughs> no, no, it's feasible. They'd have to, you know, we'd have to get this moving, but yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Well, David, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been such a great conversation, and I really appreciate uh, all of this great discussion with you. Well, thanks for having me on. It's been a hoot talking with you too. Yeah, please tell our listeners where they can find you online, and please plug all of the things that are happening right now for you. <laughs> where to find me online? Well, you can find my official website at David Mac. That's David, M-A-C-K, dot pro, David Mac, dot pro. That's P-R-O. And from that front page, there's links to my various social media, Facebook, Twitter, whatever. You can find me on Twitter at David Allen Mac, David Allen, A-L-A-N, Mac, M-A-C-K. As for what I have coming out, just this week, I had two new books out at the same time, both on the same day. Uh, the first was my Star Trek novel, More Beautiful Than Death which I actually wrote a decade ago. It was uh, one of four books that were commissioned right after the first of the new J.J. Abrams films. And then those four books all got shelved indefinitely. I thought it would never see the light of day. And then suddenly last fall, my editors called me up and said, hey, we're finally releasing that book. And I was like, yay, okay, <laughs> great, sure. But I'm really happy with it because I think it did a, I think I did a pretty good job of capturing what is unique about that incarnation of Star Trek about those particular versions of the characters. And it's a story that is developed specifically from their unique circumstances. It's not a story that could just be grafted onto the original series, the original Shatner, uh, Nimoy, DeForest Kelly versions of the characters. You could not tell this story about those characters. It has to be the cinematic universe for this story. And then the other book that came out on August 11 was The Shadow Commission. That's the third book in my Dark Arts series. The Dark Arts series is sort of contemporary secret history with dark fantasy. It takes place during the middle of the 20th century. By secret history, I, I mean it's stuff that takes place behind real events. I don't change the events of history. I show that there were things that we didn't know about happening behind the scenes of real history. In this case, there are black magicians working in the Renaissance era style, but with a little bit more of a cinematic flair. In the first book of the series, The Midnight Front, we find that the Allies had the Midnight Front, their top secret black magic warfare unit, because the Nazis had one of their own and we had to do something to stop them. The second book, The Iron Codex, is a spy thriller set in 1954, and it has to do with stopping a conspiracy to fuse black magic with the Castle Bravo nuclear test, which is the single largest nuclear detonation ever triggered by the United States. And now in the third book, The Shadow Commission, it's a paranoid conspiracy thriller. It takes place in November 1963 during the week after the assassination of John F. Kennedy, an assassination that sets in motion a global hunt for the world's last remaining free sorcerers who are being systematically exterminated. And our two sorcerer heroes must figure out who is behind this uh, dastardly scheme and why, because until they identify the enemy, they don't know how to defend themselves. So it's very three days of the Condor, but with magicians. Uh, beyond that, what I have going on uh, is you can see my name in the end credits each week on episodes of Lower Decks. I'm right there at the bottom of the screen with all of the assistants. <laughs> Consultant David Mack, it's right there at the very bottom. Yeah. That's lovely. 
And then next year, you'll see my name in a similar position on episodes of Star Trek Prodigy. I'm working on some new stuff, some uh, short stories for kickstarted anthologies. I'm working on a new Trek project that is currently classified, and I can't tell you more than that. I have an original that I'm tinkering with, and it doesn't have a home yet. And uh, yeah, that's about it. Wow. That's that's also awesome. And congrats on all these things going on at the same time. That's that's really amazing. Yeah, thank you. I mean, that's what it is to be a freelance writer. One mm-hmm. is always juggling multiple things. Yeah. Thanks again for being here today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. You can join the There Are Four Questions conversation on Twitter and Facebook by following us at Four Questions Trek. That's the number four not spelled out. And join our listeners group on Facebook by typing the Nexus into the search field. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at CD Littlefield. Keep an eye out for my next interview coming very soon. Thanks for listening to There Are Four Questions. I see no point in holding you further. You may go. This show is brought to you by Hollow Sweet Media. Computer, list other available Holosuite media programs. Loading Holosuite preview program for Open Channel, a Star Trek community podcast. Yeah, but there's still Starfleet. Exactly, yeah. I love that. Nick, is that a kookaburra that I hear in the background? Uh, it probably is. Kookaburra sits in the old gum, gum tree. tree. Merry, merry king of the witches <laughs> see. Laugh, kookaburra laugh, kookaburra gay your life must be. Thank you. Loading Holosuite preview program for The Vedic Assembly, a DS9 podcast. What flavor would I Jello that hasn't set yet. Yeah, flavor, he would be orange. You reckon he'd be orange flavored? He'd be orange flavored. Just because he's got orange goo? Yeah, exactly. Okay. I mean, it would be weird if he were a flavor and he were orange colored goo and you tasted it and it was like lime. That would be disconcerting. Be surprised. So, yes. He's... But I say like, like <laughs> bitter orange, you know? Yeah. Bitter orange. Like a blood orange. Yeah. Blood orange Odo. Yes. Oh, now I would totally eat Odo. Let's do now. that. <laughs> Loading Hollow Sweet preview program for The Janeway, a Star Trek Voyager podcast. The orangey skin makes me think of something else. Makes you think nowadays. of Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, it, and bad hair. Oh my god. He's Kazon. Donald Trump is Kazon. Trump is a Kazon. Oh my god. I'm surprised he's not calling himself Marge Trump. <laughs> because he's not very bright either. No. It fits perfectly. Well, I understand it all now. We've we've just been taken over by the Kazon. And we didn't even realize it. No. Oh my god. <laughs> Listeners, we've just solved the mystery of the last four years in the United States. Computer, deactivate Holosuite.